Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for staff at King's College London following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures which explores diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. This semester's lecture series, entitled Power to the People, Identity, Difference and Inequality, has been coordinated by Dr Kate Kirkpatrick. Handouts, presentation slides and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Good morning. Yes, I, I know people are probably not yet awake. I struggled this morning myself, uh, even though I think I had many hours of sleep, a bit of jet lag. I came in from China last night, and I would not have missed this. I would, I would not miss this for the world. I think what I'd like to do is very quickly set some objectives for us to explore. These are the objectives for this morning, and I want to try to talk about what is novel about King's College London at the moment. The idea of the international university has become static. Everyone thinks they know what it is. It's pretty much like steak. You may not be able to cook good steak, but when you taste good steak, you know it. You might not be able to define it. But this is being contested, the whole notion of the international university and internationalization. All right, and there's some current debates around it, which I'm going to try to run through. I think we need to challenge ourselves very seriously as members, as King's people, as members of the King's community, about whether we represent what the global community needs at this moment, what people need the university to be, at least members of the university. All right? So, I want to try to lead with this question so that we, we talk about these questions a little bit. Are we really engaging the dominant framing in a critical way, the dominant view of what an international university is? Are we very critical about it? And I, I, I have a position on this, uh, which I'll put forward in a moment. There's some rethinking going on of the notion of the international university. There's an internationalization agenda that isn't always well defined. It's even contested. And we need to really uh, think about the place of kings in this and what we're contributing uh, as a whole. Thankfully, about three weeks ago, maybe one month now almost, King's Council approved our new internationalization strategy at King's. And we call it Internationalization 2029, in line with King's Strategic Vision 2029. It has uh, a number of really, really hopefully transforming points, very challenging points in it. And I, I think my idea here was to challenge us to really take uh, some of our own principles and values to the next level, to make them relevant to the 21st century. So here are the arguments I want to advance, and we can maybe challenge each other on it another time, perhaps even today as well. I think that today's uh, view of internationalization, especially amongst European institutions, they're no longer fit for purpose. The 21st century is crying out for something really challenging, innovative, critical, and relevant to the times. And I don't think we yet, as uh, so-called international universities, I don't think we have yet, we have responded to that call. 
at least not, not as yet. Uh, a place like King's is beginning to move towards that, but we're not there. We're moving in the right direction. And of course, at the heart of the debate around internationalization of what an international university is, is this whole debate around decolonizing the academy. Decolonizing the university space has almost become a fad, yet there are critical issues at the core of it that we need to really look at. But I want to suggest that that debate itself and its content, the kinds of factors and points people are focusing on, will not get us where we want to go. Not because we shouldn't have that debate, but I think that there, there's certain core weaknesses around the debate that we need to explore. So if we're looking at what the higher education institution of the 21st century ought to be, I think we need to look at values. We need to dare to change our systems uh, to connect with those values. And we need a student experience that is all transforming, not transforming one part, but not the other, or not the others. That's the kind of argument that I want to make. So, what are the dominant perspectives of internationalization today? Many people have heard it. We probably have even become jaded about uh, what internationalization means or what an international university, if you like, uh, looks like. And most people, I, if you read the Times higher, you'll find the ways in which universities are ranked as the global universities, the most international universities. And I think in the last three or so years, King's has ranked between 11th and 14th. So we're very much up there. But what is it that times higher education count? This room says it all, all right? The presence of international students uh, in the university. If you look at King's, we have to be up there. Uh, we know that more than 11,000 or so students are from 150 different countries. Times higher would also count who goes abroad. In short, global mobility, which we have at King's. Some people in this room, many people in this room will go abroad to study. You do a term, a week, you go to another place. And that's seen as a really attractive uh, proposition for an international university because it exposes everyone uh, to a different part of the world. Uh, you come back, hopefully you go to the Caribbean, you go to Russia, you go to China. I don't mean Chinese students going back to China, all right? I mean. Other students not from there, not from China, going to China for study abroad, going to parts of Latin America or to the Middle East, that then expands one's worldview in a sense. That argument can hardly be challenged. But in reality, what do we find? We probably go to the places that we're more comfortable with, see people who look like us, uh, systems that are similar to ours. So uh, if you go to the UK, uh, if you leave the UK and go to Europe, of course that is study abroad. It doesn't mean that you haven't expanded your worldview, but you could have done better, really. We're still staying in familiar cultures. If you leave the UK and go to the US, at least you've crossed the Atlantic. Uh, and you would say, okay, I went to the US. But it's still very familiar. It's very comfortable. To what extent do we really, really step across that comfort zone? I mean, I think there's something to be challenged in that. But nonetheless, it still reflects the fact that we are an international university. We dare to go abroad. Uh, but when you begin to think about that going abroad, crossing border, what happens to students 
who cannot go abroad, those that we call non-mobile students. What happens to British students who, because they can't afford it, or because their family circumstances or personal situations would not uh, enable them to go abroad? Are they internationalized or not? So when Times High accounts this, uh, these markers of a diverse uh, university because we are plenty, there are plenty of us from abroad, uh, staff and students, or the fact that uh, our students go abroad, and of course, the fact that our researchers collaborate across borders. I like that very much because a, a real test of that collaboration is what you've done with it. And when you look at uh, our joint publications with our partners uh, abroad and you have all these citations and we rank high, it's something to value. But I want to seriously challenge the idea that we become comfortable with having students on campus that are international and that we go abroad and only a certain percentage of students go abroad. Most universities in the UK really push hard to have 30% of their students go abroad. Many people, uh, by and large, don't go abroad. And universities keep striving because this is how we are ranked. And I want to challenge that very seriously. But a particular thing here that I want to focus our attention on is this marketization, if you like. The university has almost become a commercial uh, project these days for a whole range of reasons. You know, those of you who are familiar with the conversation in the UK, within the UK government about what to charge home students, the fact that fees are very high, and we've had the OGA report earlier this year, and the idea that fees might be much lower, maybe a little bit lower than they are now. All of these things are still up in the air. But what it means is that universities would have even less resources if we're not careful. And therefore, this scramble for international students because of high uh, fee paying students is a canker we need to really rethink and challenge. It's not because we have, of course we're lucky to have the best students in the world who want to come to King's, but we need to challenge that very carefully. Is that sufficient is reason to focus on international students? I think it's part of it, but it's not sufficient. It's not at all sufficient. And when you look at what we do with marketing, where do we market kings? Where do universities in the UK market themselves? Which countries? Do we think that certain countries are more attractive because they have high-performing students or because they have students who can pay the fees? Let's really rethink the reason why we do internationalization. And I, I think we're beginning to do that uh, rethinking. And those admissions that focus on the best performing students uh, will suggest that we also have best performing students in certain countries, but which uh, cannot, do not have a high supply of wealthy enough students to come to the UK. And just throwing all this uh, on the table. And of course, at the moment, partnerships with the universities abroad Everyone looks for a high-ranking partner. So you want to keep company with the best performing universities on these very faulty ranks, on these very faulty ranking tables, uh, I might say. So if they're not in the top 100, many universities don't deal with them. I want to suggest that we have a mixture of the best performing in terms of those rankings, if you like. And those who perform well socially, but may not be at the very top of the rankings. But the truth of the matter is you don't get any marks, any additional marks, 
for keeping company with institutions that are not ranked, ranked the very best in the world. And the basis upon which we rank is what uh, I'm trying to challenge over the next period. All right? So, so this is the current view of internationalization, I would say pretty much globally. And I, as I said earlier, this is something I, I, I see as seriously flawed that needs to be challenged and needs to be addressed. Let's look at some of these current debates. Of course, the current debates are there uh, because we're beginning to see our campuses look different as well. So we have a diverse campus. And you can begin to see these kinds of challenges we have. If you take Kings, for example, you know that we stepped out of our comfort zone a few years back. We started recruiting students from South London uh, into our extended medical program. They may not have been able to hit those marks, but because of the effort that we put, we have opened up, uh, some of you know this, to be called widening participation. If you look at our medical uh, health schools, we have many more students uh, than we ever had uh, from uh, black and minority ethnic groups. And so this is a thing of pride for kings. But what it also means is that the combination of our students, and it's not just about black and minority ethnic groups, we also have students from white working classes who may not be able to come to kings uh, like most people uh, would. So that diversity in itself, and the fact that we then have a diverse group of international students, is bringing us something else into the university space. A lot of demand that we at least represent the students that are in the space, uh, and that's natural. It's not just a King's thing. SOAS, Oxford, Cambridge, everyone is challenged by the growing diversity in the campus, in the country, and reflected in our campuses in particular ways. So this demand that I think reared its head in particular ways for the first time uh, in 2015, I remember, we had a, a relatively small protest at King's. King students uh, rarely, uh, of late, King students now protest. But I forgot to say that I came to King's. I was a student at King's, um, my goodness, about three decades ago. I came, studied my master's and, uh, for my master's and PhD here. I don't think I ever saw any protest at King's uh, in all of those years until the last four to five years. And I was excited. I was a student union leader in Nigeria where I did my first degree. So you can imagine I challenged everything, protested everything on behalf of students and any amount of inequality that we could uh, challenge. At that time, we did. Uh, and so uh, very surprisingly at King's, I would say it's good uh, for students to express themselves. So to, to find students who are asking the question, where are the black professors? I turned around and I thought, oh, at King's. Fascinating. It happened at SOAS. And protests happen at SOAS all the time, anyway. It happened in Oxford, all right? Oxford with roads must fall. But all this happened in South Africa. With the fees must, with the roads must fall protest and the fees must fall protest, which was a challenge to the government of South Africa at the time. But the global nature of the student community read its head because those protests took place in the UK, they took place in the US. 
also is a sign of the times that if we say we are going to have diverse classrooms, we're going to have diverse campuses, we have to respond uh, to that diversity. And in a sense, uh, students are making the right points. If the student body is as diverse, why are the academics not diverse? Why are the senior staff, the staffing body, you know, why, why is the staffing body not as diverse? Why do we not uh, try to build mutuality and speak to the challenges of the people who are in our classrooms? So it's a constant struggle. And I, I think it's a real struggle that we have to really, really study carefully. So decolonization of the curriculum, decolonizing the curriculum became a really huge demand. Uh, as students, you know, in a couple of years back, I, we worked together on one uh, of the workshops and it was about liberating the curriculum. The reading list was at the top of it, all right? But the core message of the decolonizing agenda is to address structural racism, which for those of you who have studied intersectionality, Kimberly Crenshaw will be something to read. And the idea that we have multiple exclusions and there's a, there are overlapping exclusions is something that has become uh, very obvious to look at in the literature, all right? But that structural racism is something that sustains inequality, whether we're looking at education or health or the criminal justice system, is something that is now very much at the top of the agenda. It's even more difficult because when you look at attainment gap uh, in the university, that the same students start, even those that we gave a leg up by extending the medical program and other things to them, the attainment gap is a big issue that those who are likely to make it to the next stage to get first class uh, if they're undergrads or to get distinctions as masters, you begin to see a gap between what white students can attain, but I want to suggest maybe certain white students too and certain wealthy students and that a particular class or BME might not be able to attain it because of some fundamental differences and structures in the system that we have not yet rectified. And these are some of the things that King's is, is looking at. All right? But in all of this debate from South Africa to the United Kingdom to the United States, Britain, British education in the United Kingdom sits in a very unique place. Some of our colleagues will say, and some of the students tell us as well, we've come here for a British education. And at the same time, the faculty is very global. 40% of our staff are international staff. So there's internationalization in all of that. How do we then deal with this diversity question? I don't think it's as easy as simply saying, okay, we're going to really try to deal with diversity. Those those features of British education means that we have to think very carefully about how we do it. And some in the higher education literature, we have seen some who argue for an intercultural curriculum. What is that? We can't even agree on it. And even if we agree on it, will it really deal with the core of the situation that we're talking about? So, so, so this is where we are with this debate. It's not straightforward. We talk about decolonizing, but we talk about the real features of British education and how to address uh, all of that. 
and we're sitting in a diverse campus. But I, I really think it doesn't matter what we say, the time for change has come. Why? Because everything is changing rapidly in front of our eyes and the ability to adapt, which is what leaders do, what effective leaders do, what, the effect, what effective leading institutions do. We must adapt. The ability to adapt is going to be called into question. And whether we like it or not, some of the claims of the uh, decolonizing proponents, those claims are valid. The diversity and the lack of representativeness of staff, uh, like academic staff, for example, is something we have to deal with. We don't yet understand the attainment gap, and we need to understand it, and it's going to continue. Whether it's attainment, an attainment gap that affects black and minority ethnic groups or international students from particular geographies and so on. That is an issue, a factor we have to address. Okay? But let me, and I wanted to give some some examples of my own experience. Because if we don't understand our own local society and the diversity of it, at King's, look at the diversity. Home students are from different parts of the United Kingdom. They're from different classes. You have different genders and gendered, you know, what do you call it, identities. You have different belief systems. Those same things replicate themselves amongst our international students. So it's no longer, you know, I don't think it's relevant. We just distinguish in a stark way between home and international students. We have to really think across the diversities. And the attainment gap question uh, means that we don't just count. I think we need to follow students to see what is it, what makes a student improve once they have hit uh, a low mark? How do they move from there to get to a level of improvement? I have some students in my class who are the fastest improving students, fastest performing students after they've hit a low mark. We, we have not yet studied what it is that makes them uh, get to that point in order to, to really, really deal with that problem. But I, I, I want to now go to what I'm challenging about the decolonizing agenda. I have said I think the claims are valid. But here are the challenges I have with it. Our students talk about the reading list all the time, and I agree that you can pick, a, you can pick up a reading list uh, and look at it and see who the authors that have been referenced are. And they might be very Western in outlook for a subject that also has other authors from other regions of the world. There's no question about it. And that happens a lot in the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy where I'm from. But I think it's a, it's a little bit more complex than that. As an African woman who actually is one of the first to study war studies. I, I went to, I studied war studies at a time when even my own family was asking me, what are you going to do with that? Who studies war? Why don't you do law? Why, I couldn't do medicine. I had already dropped out of physics a long time before then. So how about law? Do something professional. What are you going to do with war studies? And I said, I want to better understand my own environment. Um, military coups, the era in which I grew up in Nigeria, uh, there were a lot of coups. Then you had all the civil wars that were rearing their heads. But nonetheless, I've had a student ask me, oh, your reading list doesn't have African women authors on it. Uh, not many, just a few, including mine, uh, if you can imagine. And why is that? 
and this is uh, one of my very, this was a, 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 amongst my very active students talking about decolonizing the campus, the university campus at the time. And I thought history was important. And if we don't put history uh, in the curriculum, the history of a discipline, the history of its subject, then we will get questions that focus artificially on reading lists. And I said eventually, and I also had some other reading lists, had meetings with students, and I said, look, in the countries on the African continent, for a long time you had authoritarian regimes. Studying security itself could land you in, you know, in jail. It wasn't a field that many people studied. Civilians didn't study it as much, let alone women. Uh, bloody civilians, as uh, they will be referred to, could not cross over to the realm of security studies. And if I was one of the first to study this at PhD level, imagine that there are not many women uh, before me who would have written extensively on it. There were a very small number who I always uh, reference. But the big point of that is that if you focus on the reading list, then you find people who would say, please give me a few African names, a few names from Latin America, uh, and garnish literature and, and garnish the reading list with it. I would rather have a decent academic, a progressive name referenced on my reading list, regardless of where they're from, than to have a bigoted African on it. So, so I think we need to really get to the uh, heart of the problem. Pedagogically, there's a lot that needs to be done. And I think that's what the decolonizing, what the internationalizing agenda can do for us. I think it's important that the perspectives of the students in the class are taken into account when we're teaching. And it will always change. My class last year doesn't look like my class this year. It might be similar in certain respects when I look at the identities of the students in the classroom. I have to work with the people I have in class all the time. And I'll come to what I mean by that. But my last point about uh, what, I, what beef I have with the decolonizing argument, not that I'm saying it should not, the argument is not valid in many respects, but it's in what to do about it by focusing on racialized difference. As a black woman who has fought for some of these uh, equality demands, I know how easy it is to ghettoize a subject, to ghettoize an issue. And so many universities can easily say, oh, we're dealing with racial inequality and we've dealt with it. Today, it's race. Tomorrow, it's gender. The day after, it's religion and so on. Why are we privileging one over the other when we have all of these potential exclusions on our campuses? And that was the point uh, of Kimberly Kenshaw that the overlaps, a black woman, a black person who's also a woman, who's also poor, suffers three kinds of inequalities in one. And you can see it for a white working class person who uh, is gendered in other ways, who's poor. But let me give you an example. If I have many Africans in my class, black Africans, black people, you'd have in different dimensions. Only a small number will be in that classroom on scholarships. Many of them can afford it. They have paid the fees. And then in the same classroom, you have a white person from South London who's working class. You have many white people, a small number of black people who can afford. And then you have some black people who are working class as well. Who should I privilege? The black, Asian, poor, 
And on what basis will I pick one to say, I'm dealing with your blackness first before I deal with your poverty? Or what shall I say? I'm dealing with your working class issues first before I, pri I privilege your gender. And I think it's silly for universities to keep carrying all of these policies and say, yes, we favor gender equality. So do we favor gender equality, but we don't favor race equality? We need to get our act together and come up with a true structural reform that allows our universities to be more than the sum of their parts, to respond to the very people that have come to the place and identify with the place. That is what I have against a narrow focus on decolonizing the curriculum or decolonizing agenda. I, this is not for you. You may not be able to see this properly. I tried to tinker with it. My colleague, uh, Director of International Strategy, Jen Angel, will probably be upset with me that I put all these colors there. I don't know how I got there. But this is the new King's internationalization strategy demonstrated in this way. That's what we presented to the council, that if King's is going to hit the high marks that it deserves when it comes to internationalization, we have to think differently, not about home students and international students, but about values. And at the core of this is the value of cultural competency the ability to see the world through the eyes of others and through the eyes of the other, if you like, across the diversity. Race, gender, class, creed, ability. That those diversities, those identities should not be the reason why we should not see the best ideas, the best agendas in others. So the value of cultural competency coupled with a global problem-solving mindset. King's is the place where we deploy our education and research to solve global problems. You find our people on TV most of the time talking about some new discoveries, some new health challenge that they're addressing all the time. Security studies. Uh, we are hitting uh, such marks. And therefore, if we brought a cultural competency lens to this, and we're solving global problems with education and research and service through a cultural competency uh, dimension. We will move the world, truly. That's the vision that underpins the strategy. But the internationalization at home bit talks about really how we alter our systems in the first instance. If we want to do, do these big things, it means the curriculum changes in ways that I was talking about earlier, pedagogically, building history into uh, you know, the discipline and so on. Those are the sort of things. It means that we can adapt cultural competency at home, abroad, whether we study abroad, research abroad, or we sit right here at King's and do something fascinating with the presence of our international students rather, rather than just having them uh, on campus, but also online that people can access Kings Online, which I'm sure happens with AKC these days, and still get a feel for who we are and adapt in that way. It means staff and students are truly, really internationalized in their thinking, and our systems allow for that. It's a 10-year agenda, and the global reach is the third pillar of it. 
we have always had global partners, the best in the world across different disciplines. That's not going to change. But we should have those partners select our partners very thoughtfully, keeping company with like-minded partners who would change the world, deploy their research and their education to impact. The SDG has been an example. That's what that is about. And so what this requires, I will re-explain that, is that therefore, if we are culturally competent and we do it at home, we should begin to see changes in the way we approach our research. We talk about research impact all the time. And I remember two revs ago, uh, I think that started two revs ago now, or thereabout. But before it started, people were nervous about research impact because you thought you'd do uh, the research, bring the publications, and suddenly get to a point where you start tracking back. Here's the impact that my research made. But actually, if we're, if we're world-changing people, we solve global problems, the problems we want to solve would naturally be at the back of our minds, even as we're conceiving of the research. Methodologically, we would also try to bring the perspectives of the societies we're studying to bear. All right? So our partnership base will become diversified. And then that's, that's part of it. I, I think, therefore, our classrooms, the way we assess, I didn't even talk about assessment. My own experience at King's, uh, when I first did my, uh, a master's exam, says it all. If you don't see the world through the eyes of the other, you inadvertently exclude. I had read Little Heart. I read. I went to the Little Heart archives. Some of you know it's on the third floor here still of the Strand uh, building. And I knew an exam question on Little Heart would come out. And it did come out. But the way the exam question was framed floored me completely because I didn't even know what the hell that was. So the exam question read something like this. Was Little Heart being a will-o'-the-wisp in his conception or in his response to the British defense policy in the uh, 1930s? If you've just come from Nigeria, how on earth would you know who a will-o'-the-wisp is or what a will-o'-the-wisp? So I'm thinking, will-o'-the-wisp, what is this? So I wrote everything I knew about Little Heart. Needless to say, I didn't pass uh, that exam, that particular exam. And we come with prejudices. I always say to my class, in my leadership class, I haven't met a human being who does not have prejudices, who was not raised with it. My grandmother would tell me, don't go to those people. Don't marry from there. These are lepers. And I'm thinking, Boy, when you marry, you will not marry from that people. I'm thinking, what? Why? Oh, because lepers come from there. It took me many years to realize that maybe 100 years before then, leprosy broke out in that place. And since then, everyone grew up to think of these people as lepers. Point is, in the same way that people have conceptions of the other, black, gendered in some forms, religions, everyone. In my own uh, hometown, I think everyone just first assumed that all white people were from the United Kingdom, were from the Queen's own land, as they refer to them. Also thought all white people were very wealthy. So, point is, the cultural competent lens transforms the world for the individual and for the institution. And in that respect, this is how I believe King's will be changing over the next 10 years. 
and these are the things we can expect to see. I think every new student that comes to this campus and every new staff should receive an orientation course on cultural competency. Maybe this is what the AKC is also, uh, in a sense, beginning to adapt differently. All right? It introduces us to our values at King's. Student and staff networks, sharing those internationalization experiences. I've already talked about the pedagogical innovations. All right? But we need to study ourselves and what causes the attainment gap. Why we teach the same things, but some people end up failing altogether or not doing as well, not being the best that they could be. We need a more diversified staff base so that in 10 years' time, I can point to Kings as a place where I'm not the only black woman professor. Where I look behind me and I say, that's a professor, that's a reader, that's a senior lecturer, and they happen to be black only. All right? I think methodologically, we need to think about how, if we're changing the world, we teach differently and we research differently. And of course, we're already starting this process of regional networks at King's across all eight regions, where staff, and I think students as well, can be convened around what they're doing in those regions, and our presence in the world will be felt differently. And that our partnerships with like-minded universities will mean that we're dealing with those who are the best academically, as well as those who are the best change-making uh, institutions in the world. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.